Good morning. I'm going to read this morning from Exodus chapter 3 and verse 10, uh, sorry, verse uh, 1. And let me say, um, it's good to be with you. And I appreciate the invitation. It's good to see old friends as well. And I just thoroughly enjoyed that morning meeting. It was wonderful to remember the Lord, isn't it? Okay, we're going to uh, read from Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows." Uh, that's a fantastic statement, isn't it? I know their sorrows. He doesn't say, I know about their sorrows. I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the, that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And with this uh, reading, we get the introduction to Moses being called to lead Israel out of captivity into the promised land. It's my fervent desire that this morning you won't uh, just sit here and listen to the thoughts of a man, but that you would hear God speaking to you. It's his word that we're privileged to read. Moses was a believer. He, uh, he had been zealous for God's people and God's work. It didn't go well. And he ended up on the backside of the desert uh, shepherding sheep, which became a pretty good training ground for him for his future work. And then one day as he's shepherding his sheep, um, he saw a sight that was somewhat unusual, a, a burning bush. Now, I'm sure that Moses had seen lots of dry desert bushes 
burst into flame and burn up. That, that would be a very natural thing. But there was something unnatural about this natural event, and that is that the bush never burned up. And so Moses was curious. He, he drew aside to uh, see what was happening. And God spoke to him. He was beholding the glory of God in a way he had not seen before or appreciated before, but it was seemingly just a, a natural event and yet greater than a natural event, but it wasn't until God spoke to him that he understood. And I think the same is true with us. We uh, experience some natural things that somehow there's something more than natural about it. We want to have a soccer camp and and all of a sudden, God provides all the things we just heard about. Uh, that's not exactly normal, is it? And we say, wonderful. But then God speaks to us. He shows us something of himself by the use of that event through the Word of God. That's what Moses experienced here. God spoke to him from the bush, and um, Moses was on holy ground. He couldn't stand there. Holy means separate. It means different. It means distinctive. And this was ground unlike any that he had ever stood on before, he had to take his shoes off. It wasn't his ground. Sort of like when you visit a friend and go in their house, you take your shoes off. It's not your house. <laughs> uh, I hope that's a legitimate modern version of this. But um, he had this message from God. God was the burning bush. And I hope at this point you'll remember what was written in Hebrews chapter 12, the very last verse of the chapter, I think it's verse 29, that says, Our God is a consuming fire. And this is what Moses was seeing, a fire. Um, that's normal. A bush burning, that's normal. But this is altogether different a fire that destroys everything that's not compatible with itself and yet saves the, the person alive. Doesn't destroy the person. Wonderful. This is what Moses is getting a glimpse of here. And uh, in, this, in this experience with God... He, God, then commissions Moses to go back to Pharaoh. Moses grew up in the Pharaoh's house, in the Pharaoh's palace. Go back to the Pharaoh and, and tell him, command him, 
in the name of the God of Israel to let my people go. Well, Moses' response is, I can't do that. Um, and he was right. He wasn't being modest. He wasn't being humble. He had lots of excuses why he could not do this thing that God has called him to do, and it was all based on his past experience. He didn't have the, the power to set God's people free. That was one of the answers he gave to God. And he knew that because 40 years before, he tried to do that very thing, and he ended up murdering an Egyptian man. He's a murderer. That was his great power, the power to destroy life, to kill. Well, that's characteristic of us as humans, isn't it? What's the, what are the strongest, most powerful nations on the earth today? Those that have the capacity to destroy not only the, the equipment, but the necessary delivery systems and all the rest of that. They're the most powerful ones as far as man is concerned. It didn't set anybody free. Moses knew he didn't have that power. God showed him he would be his power. And Moses complained. He said, uh, I'm not a very eloquent person. And again, he wasn't being humble. He wasn't being uh, uh, self-whatever, uh, defacing. <laughs> uh, he was speaking the truth. After he killed that man, he, he met two of his fellow Israelis, and they were not getting along well together, and he tried to mediate, step in and, and talk to them and get them to come together as, as brothers, and that didn't go well either. They turned on him, joined together to oppose Moses, and reveal him for the murderer that he was to the Pharaoh. And Moses ended up on the backside of the desert, as we're reading here, uh, sort of in exile, if you can call it that. He had given it his best shot, and he had failed. Now, before we go on with the message, uh, it may be that there are some here just like that. You came to faith in Christ, you got saved, you're excited, you want to serve the Lord, you want to serve God's people in whatever capacity, and you gave it your best effort, and all it produced was antagonism, criticism, or whatever, and so in the end, you thought, well, I'm just not capable. I'll leave that for the professionals. I'll leave that for the, 
the theologians. I'll leave that for the eloquent speakers. Um, I'll leave that for the popes and priests and pastors and, and elders and commended workers and whatever else we may call them, but I'm just not capable. If that's you, and so you come to meetings week after week and enjoy the meetings and go home and come back the next week, if that's you, I have good news for you. You're exactly the kind of person God wants to use. That was Moses. He, he, he doesn't choose big shots. He doesn't choose uh, men of outstanding uh, natural abilities. He, he uses nobodies. Moses learned he wasn't capable of accomplishing God's will and God's work, his best effort. That was a valuable lesson that he learned. And now he stands before God who is a burning bush, a God whose power is so great that it does indeed destroy everything that is foul and evil, but without destroying the person. The bush keeps on burning. Magnificent, isn't it? What an amazing uh, experience Moses has here. Um, God is going to have his way with Moses. And you know the story. He did go back but look down, if you're following along in your Bible, look at chapter 3 and verse 19 of Exodus. God says to him, But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. Isn't that amazing? Uh, uh, Moses, I'm sending you back to command Pharaoh to let the people go, but he's not going to let them go. That doesn't sound too profitable, does it? Not even by a mighty hand. So, verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and, and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst. And you remember the ten plagues that he brought upon uh, Egypt at that time? But... Pharaoh's not going to let him go, even by a mighty hand. And so God says, after that, after that, I'll let them go. And so Moses went back and he commanded Pharaoh, and you know the story, Pharaoh resisted, and Moses was God's instrument of bringing at least those first nine plagues upon Egypt, one after the other. By the end of the third plague, all the mighty and powerful men of Egypt said, this is the finger of God. They could not reproduce it. They could not 
match this. And that's just the power of his little finger. And Pharaoh knew that he was dealing with God, but he wouldn't let the people go. A little bit later, and I don't remember which plague it was, um, Pharaoh confessed, I have sinned. Well, this is good progress, isn't it? I have sinned. Oh, Moses, will you intercede for me, pray for me, and ask God to remove the plague, and I will let the people go. Wonderful. Things are, are working out just fine, aren't they? Moses prays and intercedes for him. God takes the plague away, and Pharaoh hardens his heart, and he says, I'm not going to let the people go. Well, that's what God said. I'm sure the king of Egypt will not let you go, not even by a mighty hand. And by the end of the ninth plague, you might uh, look at this at Exodus chapter 10 and verse 28. The end of the ninth plague, then Pharaoh said to him, that the hymn is Moses, get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. He says, I'm going to kill you. You see, Pharaoh was a powerful man, too. He had the power to kill somebody. They were as far as I understand, the most powerful nation in that part of the world at that time. You, you just don't march into the Pharaoh and say, you have to bow to my power and authority. He knew about power. He knew how to exercise power. Uh, I'll kill you. This is the last time. Get out of here. Don't come back. If nothing else, it demonstrates to us that works of power don't save anybody. We'll see more of that in just a moment. But God is our Savior. If you look at, um, sorry, at... Um, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 3. Um, I'm jumping in at this particular place because there's too much to read the whole story, okay? But uh, Exodus 12 and 3, God says to Moses, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household, and he describes the process here, and uh, they would inspect the lamb for three days to make sure it had no blemish, no spot, no defect, no fault. And on the fourth day, for, uh, they would kill the lamb, take the blood, put the blood on the doorposts and lintel of their house, enter in through the blood-stained door, and... Um, 
feast upon the roast lamb on the inside. This was the original Passover. It was the Old Testament preview of um, two Sundays from now, or two Saturdays from now, Easter. (laughs) But at any rate, this was the arrangement. Um, If you drop your eye down to... um, Verse uh, 29, he says, It came to pass, oh, sorry, before, before that, he said, uh, I'm going to kill all the firstborn in Egypt. But when I come through and I see the blood on the door, I'll pass over you. Now, verse 29 It came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Now hear these words. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of livestock, Pharaoh's heart was so hard He wouldn't listen to anything. I'm going to kill you. God says, great. Pharaoh's heart is hard. I'm going to touch his heart where it's soft. Did you know Pharaoh had a soft part in his heart? He had a son. He loved his son. He loved his son so much he would kill for him. He would preserve the integrity of the kingdom, the power of the kingdom. He is not going to yield to anybody. God says, okay, I'll kill your son. Now, please understand, this is not vengeance. This is not retribution. This is not God saying, I can match your power. Not at all. What God is saying here is, I'm going to kill the firstborn of every family in the nation of Egypt, but there's no reason for any one of them to die because our God is a consuming fire It burns the bush and doesn't destroy it. No reason for anyone to die. Just take a lamb, kill it, put the blood on the doorpost, enter in through it, feast on the lamb, and when I come through and I see the blood, I will pass over you. You see, the blood bore testimony that death had already come to that house. You can't kill a man twice, can you? Death had already come to that house. And yet, the firstborn would live. Pharaoh loved his son so much 
that he would kill for him. But he didn't love his son enough to save him alive. And he didn't have the power to save him alive. There's so many things in our lives that we love. We love them so much we'll fight to keep them. But we don't have the power to hold on very long. Seventy years, hundred years, gone. And so, verse 29, the Lord struck all the firstborn from Pharaoh's firstborn to all the others. Verse 30, Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And Israel was set free. They did not sneak out the back door. They did not run away like a, a nation of fugitives. They went out under the command of Pharaoh who yielded to the word of God and they were free. Uh, a new nation born, you might say. Um, they not only went out free at his command, they also went out with riches as if to say the wages of 40, four, 40 years of uh, slavery, 400 years of slavery, <laughs> I'll get that right, <clears throat> were being um, given to them upon leaving. And off they went into the wilderness. When they got into the wilderness and they came to the mountain and God had given them the law and it was time for them to get on to the promised land, Moses said, uh, I won't go, I won't lead these people any further unless you go with us. God says, I'm with you. He says, show me your glory. <laughs> show me your glory. And so God did. You remember he, he took him, hit him in the cleft of a rock, passed by, removed his hand, showed the backside of his glory, the glory that he showed him there. He was the declaration of his name, his love, his mercy, his grace, his goodness, his holiness, his justice, his righteousness. And Moses got another glimpse of the glory of God. That's at least three times in Moses' life. Did you know that is characteristic in our Bible? You think of Peter, first time he met the Lord, saw something of his glory, confessed him as the Christ. Then there was the time in the fishing boat when he fell on his knees, oh, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Then there was the time on the Mount of Transfiguration, and I'm not sure I'm going to remember them all, and it's not important anyway. Uh, then in his resurrection, the Lord appeared to him individually and privately. 
and finally that public commissioning of, of Peter by the risen Christ, repeated increasing appreciation of the glory of God, and it always resulted in service. It always resulted in activity. You can apply that to all the apostles. And I think of John, and I won't try and rehearse all the, the examples, but the very last one, he's an old man. He's been serving the Lord Jesus all his uh, adult life. And for no other reason than that, he's in exile on the island of Patmos. What kind of apostle is that? How can he do the work of an apostle in exile on a, an island where there's nobody for him to talk to or whatever? And then you remember the Lord appeared to him in all his risen glory. John fell on his face as though he were dead. Christ raised him up. And that sight of the glory of the risen Christ, that was essential for Paul, uh, John to see in order for him to be able to write that book of Revelation. It was essential for him to be able to write those seven letters to the seven churches. And we see this repeated trend. It sounds so dramatic, doesn't it? It sounds so wonderful, but how about in our lives? The simple things, they're, just, they're natural events, but they're somehow more than natural. And then God speaks. Ah, that's why. And we have a growing appreciation of the glory of God. We learn our lessons, at least if you're anything like me, we learn them slowly and, and in a hard way. <laughs> Stubborn head. <laughs> and we learn we're not capable but he is. He's our great God and Savior. And so there came that day when the nation Israel, in apostasy, uh, met the Savior, the Lord Jesus. And I love the, the overview of that. The, the three years of public ministry um, matching with the three days of inspecting the lamb. There is no spot or blemish in the lamb that was killed. And the Lord Jesus, they said, he said, which one of you convinces me of sin? Nobody could. My favorite description of him in those three years is found in Acts chapter 10. I think it's verse 28. It says, uh, he was a man who went about doing good. Isn't that wonderful? A man who went about doing good. He was also a man who went about doing mighty miracles of power. Please don't misunderstand me on this. 
I'm not speaking against doing good things. <laughs> By all means, let's do good. But we have this mistaken idea today that if we can just be good enough, loving enough, that people will see the goodness of God in our lives and, and they'll believe. It's not true. Some others of us, they say, well, if only we can do mighty miracles of power, then people will see and believe. It's not true. The fact is, the Lord Jesus went about doing good, and he did miracles. And the united response of his people was crucify him. Despised, rejected of men. Quite a response, isn't it? And as he hung on that cross, he was mocked, blasphemed, uh, despised, taunted, tempted. You remember his response? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. No malice, no spite, no one-upsmanship, I'll show you. Just pure love and grace. Father, forgive them. And so God answered him. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And so truly did he take your place and mine, so truly did he bear our sin in his own body on that cross that we hear him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's all that God will do to sin has no part in him. Even in that state, the Lord Jesus owned him as my, his own, my God. Even in that condition, desperate, beyond measure, he sought to draw close to him. But here's the wonderful thing. The next cry we hear out of his mouth on that cross is, Father. Isn't that nice? Not God. My God can be very impersonal, can't it? But Father is never impersonal. Father, into your hands I trust my spirit. Continue to do his Father's will right to the end even unto the death of the cross, 
The Apostle Peter put it this way. It said, when he was reviled, he did not revile again. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but trusted himself to him who judges righteously. Here is God his Father. And the Lord Jesus goes right into death. Death did not overtake him. He had no sin. He laid down his life because he loves us so. Amazing, isn't it? But then that was his introduction to them. You remember John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Here's the Passover Lamb, the Lord Jesus. It's his blood that was shed. He's the burning bush in which we burn up. All our life of sin burns up. And yet in him we still live eternal life. No? That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I don't know about you, uh, it's my first time here, but if you're here and have never received Christ as your Savior, it's you he's talking to in this. Whoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so we have a Savior. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. The best man can do judging our sins is destroy, <laughs> kill him. But God knows how to make old things pass away and all things become new. His is the power. His is the glory. And we can afford to take him at his word and step out and serve him by faith according to his word. Do you know the Lord? Do you know him better today than you did 10 years ago? Five years ago? Don't ever sit back and say, I know the Lord as if I know the whole of it. <laughs> well, in a way, we do know the whole of it, and yet we don't either, do we? Yesterday, I was able to join with my family and celebrate the fifth birthday of my youngest uh, grandchild. <laughs> Wonderful, great time. He knows his mom and dad. He knows their love for him. He knows what they expect of him. He knows that perfectly. But he has two older sisters and they know the mom and dad more, better than he does. 
They know the parent's love better than he does. They know what the parents expect better than he does. Why? What's lacking in his knowledge? Nothing. He knows them just as a five-year-old can know them. But when he's 10 years old, he'll know them a whole lot better, won't he? And so we can know our great God and Savior. But let's not pat ourselves in the back and think that we've got the corner on all of who he is. Let's keep drawing closer to him. Keep in the word. And every once in a while, you might have a, a soccer camp, <laughs> a very ordinary experience, and yet the Lord does something there to say, oh, wait a minute, this can only be God. <laughs> and his word speaks to our hearts, and we learn something more. Learn to trust him in this matter in which we are incapable. That's what Moses learned at the burning bush. That's what we learn as well. May God bless you with these thoughts. Father, we bow in your presence. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and um, the new life that we have in him. We thank you for the fellowship we have together in this new life. We wouldn't even have known each other apart from your son. And yet here we are today enjoying this fellowship. And so we ask that you would um, encourage those of us who are downcast, that you would um, show us something of your uh, glory as relates to our present circumstances and your will and desire for us at this present time. And Father, should it be that there's anyone here that does not know the Lord in this saving way. May he have heard or she, your voice, speaking uh, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We commit ourselves to you with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we have time. We'll finish with number three in the... Uh, in the red book, please.